So if you'd like to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and, in, and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the, of the saying, do not go beyond what is written, then you will, will not take pride in one man over another, over, sorry, one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do, you, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become, you have become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father and through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remain, he will remind you of many ways, of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everyone in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, 
and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talking, but, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love with a gentle spirit? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this challenging passage from 1 Corinthians. We do ask that you would quieten our minds and soften our hearts. Help us to be receptive to your word by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Triumph. It's a word which doesn't just describe any old victory. A champion team winning by just one point against the underdog, that's hardly a triumph. Uh, but in sports or in politics, uh, when a victory happens by a big margin or against the odds, that's a triumph. Uh, it's the same in any uh, field of human endeavour. Uh, when a uh, breakthrough happens after a lot of hard work, we consider that to be a triumph. Uh, we celebrate it and we admire. Uh, when the rescue divers brought the last of those boys uh, out of that flooded cave system, alive, that was a triumph, wasn't it? And we celebrated and we praised the people who had done it. But there is another word which is similar, but it's different, and that is the word triumphalism. It's a negative word. It's a word which is more about uh, attitude than necessarily about achievement. It's about an attitude of superiority, of uh, smugness, of boastfulness, of pride. Uh, the football team which always just expects to win or the political party that thinks it's born to rule. Or it may be an attitude found within a church where the gifts that God has given in terms of the people uh, become a source of pride. A pride which... Uh, looks down on others, um, perhaps other churches that are not so well gifted or uh, other groups of people, other Christians within the same church. Triumphalism is a word which has been used to apply to the New Testament church of Corinth. And it's strange when you think about it, isn't it? Because when we looked at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, we saw a bit of a description of the people of that church. And we learnt that as a congregation, they were pretty ordinary. Uh, they were not impressive at all. If anything, on the socio-economic scale, they were a little bit on the downside of that, a bit below average. And yet, because they are now Christians, uh, they have entered a world uh, where knowledge is valued, a world where there is uh, preaching and teaching, uh, I, I guess, just like us in that sense. I mean, when you think about it, how many of us, if we were not Christians, how many of us would be attending a half-hour lecture every week um, for the rest of our lives? How many of us would be attending a study group? How many of us would have as many books on our bookshelf at home uh, if we were not Christians? Uh, in Corinth, these, Christ these Christians 
had now become a little bit smug. Um, they were now rating their preachers and rating their teachers uh, in accordance to worldly standards, uh, which in the, their context of uh, the Greek world with philosophy and so on, they had a worldly standard, a worldly benchmark to rate their preachers by. The eloquence of their speech, the impressiveness of their message and how they connected with philosophy and their success. And they were comparing one against the other. They had developed a, an air of triumphalism about themselves and about the preacher or their favourite preacher uh, who they grouped around. But as we come to chapter 4 today, we see that it wasn't just that they had favourite preachers. It's not just that they, some said, well, I, I kind of, I prefer Paul and others, I prefer Apollos and others, I prefer Peter, um, but with no negativity towards the, those whom they didn't prefer. In chapter 4, we see that people were actually uh, looking down on the Apostle Paul and they were judging him. Now, that's something which Paul must correct, um, not just for the sake of his reputation, uh, but for the gospel itself and for the impact that his gospel might have in their lives. Because you can't separate the, the reputation of the preacher from the message of the preacher. And so this must be corrected. Uh, if you have a look in um, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, he addresses the issue of judging. Let me just read that for you. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear... Uh, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. And that time, at that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, in uh, <clears throat> last week, we saw that Paul had... Um, adopted the picture of agriculture to talk about ministry, planting the seed and sowing the, and, and watering the seed, God giving the growth. And then he'd adapted the imagery from construction of laying a foundation and building on the foundation with the right materials. Here he uh, adopts the picture of a Roman household. In the Roman world, um, people would often entrust the running of their households to a, um, a trustworthy servant. And here, uh, both Paul and Apollos are the servants. And they've been entrusted with something. They've been entrusted with the mysteries of God, which is the, uh, the unfolding revelation of God's plan and purpose for salvation, which we've seen is actually fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So it is the gospel 
which is the mystery of God that Paul and Apollos and the other apostles have been entrusted to keep and entrusted to, uh, to, to promote that message. Now, there is a judging which does take place. But what is the basis of the judgment? Well, in this passage, it's not eloquence, it's not uh, wisdom, it's not success. In verse 2, it is faithfulness, isn't it? That the servant who's been entrusted must prove to be faithful. That's the basis of the judgment. And on that matter, Paul has a clear conscience. Uh, he, He doesn't have anything to hide. Although he makes the point that it's not his own judgment of himself that matters, but neither does their judgment of him matter, especially because they're judging on the wrong basis. Ultimately, who is it who judges the servant? Well, it's his master, isn't it? It's Jesus, who we're told in verse 4 will one day come again, And when he comes again, uh, he will shine a light into dark places. He will reveal that which is uh, hidden in men's hearts. He will expose the motives of the hearts of men. And so the Corinthians have stopped doing doing the judging now themselves. They have to wait till the Lord comes and he will do the judging. Last week we heard a little bit about rewards, didn't we? Um, That the the builder who builds well will be rewarded and so on. And we talked about what those rewards would be in terms of um, seeing people whom we've ministered to actually uh, in heaven. What a great reward, how gratifying that is. We don't do it for that purpose, for the gratification, but there is a reward in that. Well, here's another reward. How about this? On the day of judgment, hearing words of praise from God... Well done, good and faithful servant. What a reward that would be. Something which the faithful servant is rewarded with. Praise from God. Now, the challenge for us is that uh, I think that as a congregation that that we do do understand the uh, importance of fidelity to the gospel, um, particularly amongst our leadership. But we do make worldly judgments, don't we? I know that I'm tempted to do so. The old, um, the old statement, he's a faithful minister of the gospel, but... And then we proceed to, uh, to write off the person completely on the basis of their particular set of gifts or lack thereof. Now, there's a place for putting people with the right gifts into the right positions... But I do think we need to be careful in that regard, don't we? That we value faithfulness above all things. On the other side of things, the challenge for those in leadership is to be faithful to the gospel. That the accolades that they might receive from other people, um, well, that's not the basis of of judgment and the, the the view that a person might have of themselves. Well, that's not the the only judgment that ta- that matters is the judgment that comes from 
God himself, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 6 and 7, Paul now makes it clear that in all of what he's been saying so far, that he's actually, it's, all, it's actually more about Apollos and himself. And it seems that uh, what's been happening in Corinth is that that's been the main area of comparison, that uh, people have been comparing Apollos, uh, who's got more of a Greek background and is a very eloquent kind of um, preacher, we know that, uh, comparing Apollos uh, positively and Paul negatively. And so he's applying these things to himself and Apollos. But it's not for... Paul's benefit it's not because he needs to be built up in his he's not just trying to defend himself for his own purposes but rather it is for their benefit and he gives gives two reasons uh, first of all we see in verse 6 that uh, he says now brothers I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying do not go beyond what is written. And I think to myself, and I read that, and I said, well, I'm glad that they needed to learn the meaning of that saying because I don't have a clue what it means. <laughs> it seems that this is a, um, probably a common phrase back in their day that they use that phrase, and he wants them to think through the meaning of that phrase. And so it's not a phrase which we use, so we've got to doubly think through what the meaning is. And I take it that, that it refers to the scriptures which Paul has already cited in this letter. Um, let me give you some examples. In, uh, in chapter 1, verse 9, for argument's sake, uh, he introduces what he's going to say by saying, For it is written. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, uh, uh, in chapter 1, verse 31, he says, Therefore, as it is written... And in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, however, as it is written. So there's a bit of a theme uh, in those first two chapters. Uh, each of the quotes that he gives from the Old Testament uh, show that man's wisdom, uh, man in his wisdom rather, would never dream up something as foolish as the crucified Christ as the way that God would bring about his salvation. And, and what it shows, therefore, is that... Um, if it's not something, the gospel is not something which we in our wisdom would ever think about, then we can't actually boast in ourselves, can we? Our only boast is in the Lord himself. Now, if the Corinthians understood that, then he goes on to say, well, you wouldn't be so puffed up like balloons full of hot air ready to burst. And this leads Paul to ask some rhetorical questions, questions where the answer uh, is actually obvious. Let me refer you to verse 7. What makes you, for what makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Now, when he says... For what, for who makes you, for who makes you different from anyone else? I think that's kind of like first century talk. For who do you think you are? 
Who do you think you are? Why are you boasting about one man over against another when it hasn't come from you? You've actually you've received these gifts. These gifts are a gift from God. It's, a, it's part of God's graciousness to you. So why, why boast? Do you know, God's grace should lead us to a particular attitude, shouldn't it? What, what is that attitude? Grace should lead to gratitude, thankfulness. Whereas triumphalism... What kind of an attitude that leads us to, to pride and to, and to judgmentalism and self-righteousness. And so, if they only understood what Paul has been saying, then they would be protected from that. And that was the problem in Corinth. Uh, in the Roman Empire, the word triumph or triumphus in Latin, of which I know nothing of the language... Uh, but the word triumphus uh, was the name for a military procession. Uh, you think of, of those, you've probably seen them in some of the Ben-Hur movies and things like that. In a military procession where a, uh, a victorious general would stage this, this grand entry uh, into the city as he's returning from being victorious in battle. Uh, where he would be up front on his, in his chariot and the horns would be blasting and, and he'd have his armies behind him and the crowds of people would be lining the streets and they would be rejoicing and they would be celebrating and cheering and praising him. One day, you and I will be part of a triumph. But one which is much better than that. For Christ, by his resurrection, has won the greatest of victories. He's been victorious over Satan. Which means that as we pass through the trials and the spiritual warfare of this life, as we are faithful to the end, when Christ returns, then we will stand with countless millions of others who've put their trust in Jesus at the throne of God, praising and rejoicing and uh, worshipping him forever and ever. In Revelation chapter 7, never again will we hunger, never again will we thirst, never again will a tear fall from our eyes. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12, we will reign with Christ forever. You looking forward to that? Well, the Corinthians are behaving as if they already have it all. See verse 8. Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings. And that without us, you don't need us for that. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. It's, it's like some false teachers these days who, who take the promises of heaven, the glories of heaven, the triumph of heaven, and at the very least imply that that's all actually 
given to us now. That uh, God wants you to be rich in this life. God wants you to be successful in this life. God, the church leader uh, once explained to me why he owned a very expensive, luxurious car. And he said to me, if, if you're going to preach it, you must live it. That was his gospel. In a Roman triumph procession, the victorious general would not only put his armies on display for their glory, but dragged along also were his captives for their shame. And right at the very end of the procession, behind all of the other captives, would be those captives who had been condemned to die in the arena. In verse 9, Paul says of himself and the apostles, that's us. That's us. Have a look at verse 9. In verse 9, uh, he says, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe to angels as well as to men. Some in the early church were embarrassed by the Apostle Paul. Uh, we see this scattered throughout some of his letters, um, particularly uh, when he was imprisoned, there were people who there were, there were people who, you know, said they were Christians who who deserted him. They didn't want to know him. People were embarrassed, they were ashamed by the Apostle, because he was so often rejected, he was beaten, uh, he was imprisoned. He was hardly the celebrity pastor that they were after. You know, if they had websites in those days, he wasn't the, the guy who they would feature on their website and say just how awesome he is and what an incredibly talented and gifted minister that they have at their church. And yet our Lord Jesus said, Whoever would be my disciple must take up his cross daily and follow me. Our Lord Jesus, who in Isaiah 53 printed for you on your sheets there, was one who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows who was familiar with suffering. I mean, Paul's ministry is a cross-shaped ministry. And it kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? about the Corinthians, what would they have thought of Jesus? Seriously, what did they think of Jesus? What do we think of Jesus? And how is that reflected in our lives and our ministry? In verse 10 and following, um, Paul <coughs> contrasts uh, in a series of statements the the uh, what the Corinthians thought of themselves uh, as compared to what the apostles actually, uh, actually were. So in verse 10, the, the apostles are fools for Christ, but the Corinthians are so wise. The apostles are weak, whereas the Corinthians are so strong. Uh, the Corinthians are honoured, but the apostles are hungry, thirsty, in rags, beaten, and homeless. 
What was the nature of their itinerant ministry? And if that's not clear enough, in verse 13, he, he says that we are the scum of the earth. We're garbage. We're the stuff that, you, you know, that the truck comes and picks up from outside your place every week and takes to the dump. That is his self-description. It's not impressive, is it? But the triumph which we belong to lies in the future. It is then that we will no longer hunger, that we will no longer thirst, that we will no longer weep. But for now, (laughs) we have that secured for the future. But for now, we are Christ's ambassadors in a sinful world, in a fallen world where we tell people the gospel, we tell people about sin and, and judgment and the scandal of the cross, which means that people are going to react to us differently. For some people, we are the sweet fragrance of life because they embrace the gospel. For others, we're the stench of death. And that's because of sin. It's not because of us. It's because we are Christ's ambassadors in a fallen world. And yet, the way that we respond to that uh, is different to the way of the world. Because we have that future triumph that we look forward to in verse 12, um, just like the Apostle Paul says of himself and the other apostles, we have the capacity to uh, respond to sufferings in a way which is very different uh, to that which it would be otherwise we have the capacity to endure persecution. We have the capacity to, to actually bless people who curse us. We have the capacity uh, to, when we are slandered by people, to not retaliate, but rather to, to answer kindly. Because we're not living for this life. We're living for the triumph which lies ahead. Now, you can imagine people in the Corinthian church. This, this is a letter that was, would have been read to them in church. It would have been a long service, I think, wouldn't it? And you can imagine people listening to this and, you know, some kind of getting their backs up and being, how dare he say that? And, but others, others feeling quite ashamed and responding in a, in a humble and a right way. It's not Paul's desire to shame the Corinthians for the sake of shaming them. He's actually being somewhat of a father to them. And that's what verses 14 to 21 is all about. Let me just read a couple of those verses. Verse 14 and 15. In verse 14 he says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children... Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Again, this is the concept of the Roman household, where children were often not cared for by their parents directly, but rather were cared for by guardians, by, by, by servants. And there are others who are caring for the Corinthians we have a whole lot of people that be caring for them. We know Apollos and Peter were caring for them. The other leaders are caring for them. But Paul, I think here, 
he's, he has been disparaged. And so what he's wanting to do is he's wanting to re, uh, rebuild his relationship with them. He, he wants to re-establish his, his rightful apostolic authority, but not in a way that is authoritarian. And so the concept of the, the father and the, and the, and the children uh, is an appropriate uh, way to do that. And it's actually quite true because he does have a unique relationship with him. They became Christians through him. He is their spiritual father. Now, um, fatherhood, a part of fatherhood is modelling behaviour to your children. You know, sometimes I see my kids with bad habits and I think, oh my goodness, they learnt that from me. <laughs> uh, we want to model right behaviour to our children. And that's the case here. Um, Paul, uh, as a father, is modelling right behaviour to, towards them so that although they would kind of prefer it if Paul became a little bit more like what they thought of themselves. It's actually they who need to become like him, to imitate him as he imitates Christ. That cross-shaped life and ministry. And that's what he wants. The other thing about being a father is that it involves discipline when modelling hasn't worked as well as it might otherwise. Often when disunity is apparent in a church, uh, it has spread uh, throughout the church, but you can, uh, when, you, when you analyse it, uh, you, you can work out that it's actually just a few people who are causing the disunity. Sometimes it might be just one person who has spread their poison or it could be two, or it could be a handful of people uh, who are involved in causing it. And whilst Paul has been speaking generally to the church, uh, now in verses 18 to 21, he finally zeroes in on those few people. Have a look at verse 18. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing and then I'll find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip, or in love, and with a gentle spirit? Well, there's the choice. And we know what Paul would prefer. He doesn't want to have to go and confront... He he would prefer for this letter to be, uh, to be used by God for them to be repenting of their sins so that when he comes to them that it can, he can be coming uh, with gentleness. That's the choice. That the triumphalistic power brokers should repent. Now, uh, one thing I've noticed about power brokers in a church is that they do have power. And I've also noticed the result of their power. They influence people. That, that is for sure. That's, that's the nature of being a power broker. 
They influence people, but they tend not to lead people, to influence people, to empty themselves of their pride and to humbly trust in Christ. Because that's not what they're on about. I've never known of anyone who has grown in, in grace, in humble grace, through the, the ministry of superiority, worldly wisdom and division. I've never known anyone to grow in grace through that. Instead, it is the foolish message of the cross which is powerful to save and enables people to grow in grace. For as the character of the cross, as the shape of the cross is embodied in our faithfulness, in our priorities, in our lives... We may not look triumphant now, but people are going to grow in maturity in Christ through us. So that on that day when the only judgment that counts is pronounced, we may hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the Lord Jesus who humbled himself and became a man and willingly suffered scorn and ridicule and rejection and ultimately death as a criminal on a cross. Father, we thank you for his victory over Satan and over death and that one day that we will be part of that triumphant celebration uh, around your throne. But for now, Lord God, we pray that we would, uh, our lives would be shaped by the cross. Father, empty us of pride, empty us of triumphalism. Father, may we be faithful servants. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.